Church, would you pray with me as you're seated? Father, we are here, God, because of your holiness and what you have done for us, God. So it's our joy to gather. God, and we sing for all that you have done for us, God, that you have given us amazing grace that was not earned or deserved from us, but God, a good gift to us. And God, that good gift is what sustains us, God, the great hope and promise, God, that you are with us in the, in the fire and the flood. God, you are faithful forever, perfect in love, Father. And we worship you this morning, God, because you are sovereign over us. But God, all of that takes root in the fact that you are utterly different from us. God, that is because you are holy and there is no one like you. So God, our hearts at the same time can overflow with joy and grace and thanksgiving and utter reverence for who you are. God, for what you've done. And so Father, as we rightly come together now and sit underneath the truth of your word, God, we have joyfully tried to weave this narrative together. And God, we joyfully now open your word and see how everything that we see in creation God, is a product, is a byproduct uh, of your creative purposes in the world. And so, Father, help us to rightly see that in chapter 3 and 4 of Genesis this morning. So, God, in your word, would you do what only you can do? And, Father, that's mold and shape our hearts. God, conform us more and more into your image and to your likeness. God, transform and renew us by the power that's found only in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, open with me to Genesis chapter 3. Going to continue in this sermon series through the book of Genesis where we have set aside this time to consider this. The God created the world and in the book of Genesis what we can see and uncover and understand is this. That there are creative purposes that were given to us in the book of Genesis that still both exist and, and, and we still live into and live under even here today in 2021. In chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, we realized and saw and were reminded of that we were created to both bear the image of God and to multiply his image in and over creation. And then what we see in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 is this, the, the narrative, the story of Creation takes a very dramatic turn, but even in the fall and the first sin and the story of Cain and Abel, we can see that God has a particular purpose for his creation. And in creation, we get to see and understand how God desires to both rule and to reign over creation and how even the sinfulness of humanity cannot change that purpose of God. Because we enter Genesis chapter 3 and 4 with this understanding that if God could have created a world by which and in which he could have received more glory than the world that we live into, then he would have, okay? So from the very beginning, God is creating and executing creation in a way that gives him glory. And so even in the twists and turns of this narrative, we can boldly stand on the word of God and know and proclaim that this is good, that God's creation is, is good, that he is sovereign over it, and he is still holy in it. And so what we see in creation is God's very best, the perfect part of his plan. And so in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, I want us to see two very clear purposes um, in creation that are deeply rooted in both God's word and God's work. 
there's a lot of narrative here in chapter three and four. And so I want to spend just a few moments just kind of giving us a highlighted view of what is happening in this creation narrative. Many of you are familiar um, with this and about this, but let's just take a few moments and kind of summarize chapter three and chapter four, and then we'll see how in these two chapters we can see the creative purposes of God and his word and in his work. And so we're introduced in the beginning of chapter three with the sneaky serpent who comes and, and the Bible says that he is more crafty than any other beast the Lord God has made. So who made the serpent? Well, God made the serpent. And who made the serpent crafty? Well, God is the one who made the servant, serpent crafty. And so if the serpent says to Eve, here's the hinge question of the entire passage is this, did God really say that you should not eat of this. And he said, yes, if you eat of it or if you touch it, you will surely die. And the serpent goes back to Eve and says, no, 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 you will not surely die. If you eat, you will be like God. There's the temptation that Adam and Eve caved to, that you will be like God. And so Eve ate and gave some to Adam in verse 7. The guilt of that decision is that they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve were walking in, or Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden. Verse 10 says that they were afraid. Verse 13, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the, the serpent. Verses 14 through 19, God punishes all three of them. He punishes the serpent. He punishes the woman who's yet to be named, and he punishes Adam. In the end of chapter 3, God ba- drives them out of the garden. They can no longer enjoy his perfect creation in the way in which he created them for. Why? Because sin has entered the equation. And since that moment, everything about society and humanity has forever been changed. And we see that this result have a generational effect as we enter into chapter four. And the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons. Cain was a worker of the ground. Abel was a a keeper of the sheep. They both bring an offering to God. Cain brings the fruit of his labor in the ground. Abel brings the, the, the fruit of his labor in his flock, and they present these offerings to God. And God regards Abel's offering, but has no regard for Cain's offering. So Cain gets angry. God steps in in this moment and says, Cain, be careful, is what he says. In your anger, be careful that sin is crouching at the door, is what God tells Cain. But you can rule over it. You can rule over sin. But be careful, its presence is near to you. Cain does not listen to the word of God. He goes out to the field, and you know what happens. He kills his brother, Abel. God comes back into the equation. Him and Cain share this dialogue in the middle of chapter 4, and then God punishes Cain and sends him away. He sends him to build his own city. We see in the text of Scripture that it's a prosperous city full of many generations of Cain's descendants. And then... Adam and Eve have another son whom they name Seth. And the chapter 4 ends with, 20, with verse 26. It says this, that at the same time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Fascinating narrative for us. Fascinating narrative, even if you're not a Christian, to read that story of creation as fast as captivating for us. Why? Because it forever changes the trajectory of humanity. That when evil entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, the world has never been the same. But God has always been the same. 
God was not surprised by Genesis chapter 3. He didn't have to come up with a plan B after the serpent tempted Eve. God has always been seated on his throne. The God who spoke creation into existence elicits purpose from Genesis chapter 3 and 4. There's really no explanation for evil given in chapter 3. There's much could be said, and we know the Bible does speak of evil and speaks to evil and speaks of where evil comes from. But in Genesis chapter 3, we just know that it enters into the equation. Perhaps a summary of evil in the Bible could be this, that evil is ordained um, or maybe allowed, might be a better word, by God to accomplish his purposes. We sung about that earlier in the choir song, Holy is He, and when we proclaim that God is sovereign over us, that what, uh, what the enemy meant for evil, God, you turn it into good. It's, it's what God does. It's this very heartbeat. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is God's heart. He's not confused. He, he doesn't know. He's not confused as to what to do next. We see a deeper picture of who he is and then the way in which he desires to rule and to reign in creation. So what are his purposes? I think Genesis chapter 3 and 4 show us two specific purposes of God that are made known in creation. One of those is the word of God, and the second of those is the work of God. And so we'll spend the remainder of our time considering these two purposes in light of Genesis chapter 3. First of those is this, creation finds purpose in God's word. Creation, we, all creation, humanity, mammals, fish of the sea, birds of the air, living things, all the things we walked through last week in Genesis chapter 1, all of them find purpose in the very word of God. Why? Because in chapter 1, we know that God spoke creation into existence, that his word is literally the foundation of the world. That God uses his created words to bring about creation. He spoke it into existence. So from the very beginning, God knew, and he still does know what is best. And for us, on this side of the equation narrative, what is best is made known in and through his word and nowhere else. So we see in God's word, his creative purposes are found only in his word. So then what does the serpent attack? The word of God. You see the question that the serpent asked in verse 1? Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? What a temptation. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And can't we trace all of temptation back to this question, the idea, the false belief of what God actually said, and trying to take what he said, and then me and like us, in our infinite wisdom, we take what God actually said, and we kind of water that down a little bit. Oh, surely this is what God meant whenever he said that. No, like God said it and he meant it. It's not up to us to kind of take it and twist it however we want to. Perhaps the best parenting advice that ever re- I ever received was from one of Amy's brothers. And, and he said this, to say what you mean and to mean what you say. So when I tell our sweet little girls, hey, go to the bathroom and go put on your pajamas, 
I don't mean run around the house and act like a chicken for five more minutes. No, like I said what I said. I meant what I said, so go obey what I said. See, the temptation here is this, like God said what he said. And the temptation the serpent used to Adam and Eve and that Satan uses in our lives today is this, for us to take what God said, to take a step back from it and to put our heads in our pockets and scratch our head in the infinite wisdom that we falsely believe that we have. And did God really say that? Is that really what God's word meant? Is there not a more comfortable way, a more convenient way for me to obey the word of God? Temptation. And consider this, like at this moment in creation, what is the only thing that Adam and Eve don't have? They were made in the likeness of God. They enjoyed communion with God, that God literally walked in the garden with them. You remember the end of chapter 1, there was naked and they were naked and there was no shame. There was intimacy here that they shared with God. There was no shame in their relationship with God. They had all of this, and yet they wanted something more. You see, likeness was with God, uh, likeness of God was not enough for Adam and Eve. They wanted to be God. And that's the temptation that the serpent offers Adam and Eve. No, no, no. He said, God knows that if you eat this, that you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So the goodness of God was not enough for Adam and Eve. And this action and rebellion that they took to eat of the fruit and disobedience to God's word forever messes up God's relationship with his creation. Follow along, we'll read chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 here. It's a picture of this broken relationship. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They must have been in eastern North Carolina in the summer because there was a cool of the day, and then the hot of the day was coming. But God was walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, what was Adam? I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The God comes in, and then he responds to this, these verses and says, And, and, and who told you that? How did you know that, 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 you, that you were naked? You were once living in right relationship with no guilt and no shame, and now you have guilt and shame. How did that happen is the question that God asked Adam. Then the next question, have you done all that I told you? What happens here is God punishes them for departing from his word. That his spoken word in creation was sufficient for creation. But Adam and Eve were tempted with something, the false belief that something out there was better or could fulfill them in a way that God could not. So they departed from the word of God. And so what we see in verse 14, and then again in 16, and then again in verse 17, is God punishes the serpent, God punishes woman, God punishes man. Why? Because they had departed from the word of God. So there's something special in God's word that humanity ought not to depart from. And when we depart from it, we depart from him. There's punishment there is what we see. And that continues in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. They live into the consequences of their parents' choices. They were created, Cain and Abel created differently. They had different passions. They had different desires. They had different giftedness. 
Cain was a worker of the ground. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And both of them bring an offering to the Lord. And then God regards Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Cain brings an offering from the fruit of the ground, an appropriate offering. Why? Because he worked the ground. Abel brings an offering from the firstborn of his flock, an appropriate offering. Why? Because he was a shepherd. He was a keeper of the flock. Both of them bring acceptable offerings to God. But look how God responds in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You see, God stepped in and warned Cain with his very word and said, be careful if you do this, Sin is close by. You can rule over sin, but be careful. It's crouching at your door is what God says to Cain. And Cain doesn't listen. Again, he departs from the word of God. And what we see in chapter 4 is a continued domino effect from Cain's decision to depart from the word of God, just like his parents did. The sinful departure from the purpose of God's word. That enmity enters into the heart of humanity and mankind. And Genesis chapter 4 is a picture of the consequence of this throughout generations. He even elicits later in chapter 4 the story of Lamech, one of Cain's offspring in Lamech. We see the introduction of, of polygamy into society. We see the introduction and, and the grotesqueness of pride. You see the consequences of Cain his generations, his offspring, his children were living into the domino effect of departing from the word of God. Same with Adam and Eve. There are so many similarities here. And all begins with a departure from God's word. And you can probably already understand how I'm going to apply this. You see, all the sin in our own heart comes from the exact same origin. It comes from a departure from the word of God. That all disbelief in God begins with a diminishing belief in his word. Don't miss that. That all disbelief in God begins with a diminishing belief in his word. That We begin to think our own ways are better than his ways. That our words are more significant or have more weight or have more meaning or more right or righteous than his word. That all disbelief in God begins with a diminishing belief in God's word. God's word tells us in Psalm 1 that it is a delight to the righteous. Psalm 16 says that in God and in his word, there in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 71 says that his word, God's word, is our hope. Psalm 119 says that his word, y'all probably know this one, is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And so we take the beauty of God's word that we state that we believe in on Sunday morning and the temptation of our own hearts is to take the truth and beauty of this and to ask the question that the serpent asked of Eve. And that question is this, did God really say? You see, if we boil all sin down to its common root, what we are doing and what we are tempted to do is believe the lie that there is satisfaction outside of God's word. Look around the world and see this. 
Look in your own heart and see this, right? What is the core of gossip? The core of gossip is so I can make someone else look bad so that I can look good. And we think, we believe the lie that we will be satisfied in that. Sexual immorality believes that there is some form of fulfillment outside of God's creative purposes for sex. And we believe the lie that there is satisfaction out there that's not found in here. Drunkenness, right? We believe that just one more will satisfy this desire of my heart and that his word is not enough. Laziness is the belief that his word is is what it is and I'm just going to sit on my couch and enjoy my potato chips. No, like his word calls us to something. Yes, rest is a good thing, but slothfulness is not. Read the Proverbs. We could go on and on and on and on, right? Think of every sin that your heart deals with. All of those things are a departure from the belief that God's word is sufficient, that his word is enough. Again, what we see in creation is all disbelief in God begins with a diminishing belief in God's word. Because here's the great reality when it comes to God's word. If we can't trust all of it, then we can't trust any of it. Right? So God's word is sufficient for salvation. It tells us how we can come to know the Lord. It's sufficient for sanctification. It tells us how we can grow in the Lord. It's, it is sufficient for how we fight sin and temptation. It is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. The New Testament church is clear on how the church should be ordered and the offices of the church that the New Testament church should have. It is sufficient. It is sufficient when we think about the second coming of Christ that we know that one day he will return for his bride. And listen, we can't pick and choose what God's word is good for and what it's not enough for. It's either all or nothing. And that is the exact temptation of Adam and Eve and of Cain. They were tempted with the belief that God's word was not enough. What we see from the very beginning, that God spoke creation into existence, and ever since then, he has given his people his word to build their lives around. But there's hope here, too, that in creation, when man departs from God's word, God redeems us through his work. Let's walk back through chapter 3 and 4 and see how creation finds purposes or finds purpose in God's work. That even when man departs from God's word, God works to pursue and redeem his creation. Consider this just for a moment. Adam and Eve, we literally cannot overstate the consequences of their decision. You understand that in this one decision, in this one temptation, literally all of humanity was forever changed. Nothing will ever be the same again because of Genesis chapter 3. Literally everything is different. And yet what happens in verse 8 of chapter 3? They were hiding from God and God goes on his morning stroll through the garden. In this act, what is he doing? God is pursuing them. Verse 9 and 10, when Adam and Eve were hiding in fear, what does God do? He speaks to them. He says, where are you? Some of you had that testimony, right? You were hiding from God, wanted nothing to do with him. And he called out to you. He said, where are you? He had no business speaking to you. You had failed him for the thousandth time. 
You had sewn your fig leaves together to try and cover yourself, and yet God, in his sovereignty, calls out to you, where are you? You remember that time when he called out to you? And that's an act of God's grace that we see in his work here, that God gives consequences for their sin, but he does not destroy them in their sin. Don't miss that, church. Like, you, we miss this all the time. Like, we realize, we need to realize, like, like our sin doesn't just deserve, like, consequence. It deserves, like, complete and utter destruction. And so the reality that we're still breathing today in light of the sinfulness of our week is an act of God's redeeming work in creation. Don't, don't miss that. It's a beautiful thing that we are alive and well today because God has redeeming purposes for you. One of the beautiful pictures of this in all of Scripture is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is, if you took a theology class at some point in time, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. That word doesn't mean anything to you. It's the first pronouncement of the gospel in Scripture. It's the first time the gospel is pronounced in Scripture. Let's go back and read it. God is writing here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, this picture is a foretaste. It's a picture of the coming Christ. That one day, although the serpent twisted and manipulated woman in this particular moment, one day woman will give birth to the savior of the world and that savior will crush the head of the sneaky snake once for all forever god is foretelling the defeat of the serpent by a future descendant of the woman they have a picture upstairs i hope it'll show up on the screens behind me Um, we have this picture above our fireplace in our living room Um, Amy got this, I think, about a year ago. And it's a picture, and it's representative of Genesis chapter 3, verse verse 15, because what you see on the left is Eve, and on her heel, on her uh, foot, is the serpent. The serpent has caught Eve, has deceived Eve. And then in the picture on the right, you have the Virgin Mary about to give birth to Jesus. And notice where Mary's heel is. You see, in the birth of Jesus, the serpent, is once forever destroyed for always. And that is exactly what Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is pointing to. That God is literally telling the serpent, hey, all right, you deceived Eve, but your days are numbered, buddy, because I get the last word here. And all of creation, all of the Bible is the story of how God is working and redeeming creation, pursuing us when we need not be pursued, when we don't deserve to be pursued. You see, in this picture, God doesn't just foretell a future provision. He makes immediate provision. Let me connect a couple of things in chapter 3. One, Adam and Eve, verse 7. What did they do when they realized their sinfulness? They sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths. Read verse, chapter 3, verse 21. says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The beginning of this chapter, Adam and Eve made the choice that we are still reaping the consequences of. And God had every right to utterly destroy them. Like, if, 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 just take a moment. Like, if you had just created the world and the people that you had just created had just departed from your own 
word. Like, I think I would have just, like, gotten my finger out and, like, flicked him off the face of the planet. That's maybe why I'm not God, one of the many reasons. Right? Like, they don't deserve this. And in their shame, they try and weave these fig leaves together to try and cover themselves, make themselves feel better about themselves. What does God do in verse 21? He clothes them. With what? Garments of skin. What we have here in verse 21 is, is God. This is the foundation of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That God made the first sacrifice for sin in Genesis chapter 3. And don't miss this because God in Christ makes the final sacrifice for sin in his own son. And what we see in creation is that God in his work is redeeming creation all the while, presenting himself to be the gracious, loving, redeeming creator that we know him to be. That God is the one that makes the first atonement for sin. And God is the one who through his son makes the final atonement for sin. So we can sit here today and be thankful for God's redeeming work in all of creation. God's purpose in creation is to initiate a relationship that is forever defined by his grace and his redemption. Well, how do we see this played out in the life of Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel teach us that the right response to the word of God and the work of God is the worship to God. We see this in their offerings that are made to God. And what we see here is that Cain provides an illustration of how even in this moment there is grace and redemption. Now, a lot of scholars disagree on why God regarded one over the other. Uh, Perhaps an explanation is this. Um, I believe if we look at the original languages here that both of them presented God an equal and right sacrifice. You may have heard um, in childhood Sunday school or somewhere that, that one was a good sacrifice and one was a bad sacrifice. I don't think scripture teaches that because scripture does not use the word sacrifice. It uses the word offering. Now sacrifice, we know, we just talked about it. Sacrifice requires the shed blood for the forgiveness of sin. But in Genesis chapter four, they're giving God an offering, an offering of worship. And so it would be right for Cain to offer the fruit of the ground. It would be right for Abel to offer the first fruit of his flock. Those would both be equal and right sacrifices to God. And so what then do we make of this? Then how does God have regard for one but not the other? I think in this moment, it reminds us and teaches us where right worship has always come from. It comes from the heart. That literally, Genesis chapter 4 shows us That right worship to God, a right bringing of an offering unto God, comes from a right heart towards God. God regards Abel's offering, not Cain's. I think the answer is here in verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? You see, Cain here, he had a heart problem. And God teases it out of Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? You see, the attitude, the posture of his heart, of Cain's heart, is what affected the offering that he presented to God. And you see, God was not tricked but how good or shiny or nice Cain's offering appeared to be. 
God looked right through that and looked at Cain's heart. And so you see the application for us today, church, is this. It matters not how polished, how good your offering of worship to God looks, sounds, or appears. When God looks at your heart and the offering you bring to God, he looks straight at your heart. You cannot distract him or wow him by the things that we use to make that offering more ornate or less ornate. That God has always been captivated by the heart of his people. So then I wonder if God were to ask these same questions of our offering of worship today. Maybe for you this week. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? I love this question. It's not just that Cain was angry. It was that his anger in his heart was a picture on his face. That there was something about the way that, that Cain offered his worship to God that was not pleasing unto God because it was overflowing from a heart that was not directed towards God. Now, Scripture does not give us the why, but Scripture does show us the picture. Of this. Like, no, so our heart, our motive, our desire then is to present the good news of Jesus as an act of worship unto him. We worship in a way that captures this. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Because they're offering this gift to God. Just remember this, the same God who created the world perfectly, that, that man in our sinfulness chose to depart from God's perfect creation and enter into a world of brokenness. And in this world of brokenness, God makes a way through his son, Jesus, that we could be saved, that we could be saved from their brokenness. That brokenness in our life could be made whole. And we have access to that gift and towards that gift by turning from ourselves and our sin and believing in Jesus. And when that happens, we are restored back to right relationship with God. That is the picture of the gospel. And so when we walk into worship, when you wake up tomorrow and you open your Bible, it is that picture of the gospel that changes the way that we view our act of worship, our offering of worship unto God. And so therefore, our offering should not be accompanied by a sad heart or a downtrodden face. There should be joy in our worship. Not because you have something great to offer God, that when you had nothing to offer him, he offered you his very own son. Worship does not need to look like we're watching paint dry. There needs to be something that fills us, that makes us remember, well, I know, oh, well, I'm just very intellectual, Luke. I'm just thinking about the words that I'm singing. I'm just really in-depth thinking. You're like, no, 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 don't miss this. If that was an excusable, like, response, then why does God ask Cain, why is your face fallen? Why are you frowning when you're worshiping me is the question that God is asking Cain. Do you not remember what I've done for you? And so for us, when we walk into worship and we've had a tough week, see, worship lifts us up out of ourselves. It gives us permission to leave our circumstances behind because Christ has come and offered you freedom and forgiveness that's only found in Jesus. And that's why we worship. It's the redeeming work of God for people who don't deserve it. Look around the room. That's us, church. 
It's the hope that's found only in Jesus. It goes on here. Sin springs from a wrong heart. Cain kills Abel. God and Cain had this long dialogue in which Cain begins to feel remorse over his sin. Chapter 4, verse, let me see, chapter 4, verse 14 says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, from the place I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is Cain speaking to God, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. (laughs) Don't miss that. You see, in all the guilt and all of the shame, Cain begins to realize, I have done this. I have hurt you, God. Humanity is forever changed because of me. Here's what I deserve. And then the Lord God said to him, not so. The verse continues, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That God's redeeming work in your life says not so. That there is nothing that you can do, have done, will ever do that can take you too far away from the presence of God. Because he looks at you, he looks at your sinfulness, through your sinfulness, your sinfulness that has been paid for by the blood of his own son. And he looks at you and he says, not so. There's hope there for us. God's redeeming work provides us provision and protection. And it's a picture here of future grace, that Cain leaves this place. He goes to build a city, and his family inhabits this city for generations. Literally, generations prosper because God put a mark on Cain and said, even in spite of his sinfulness, he's mine. Don't touch him. Don't mess with him. In verse 26, to Seth... Also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At the time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, it's not until the end of chapter 4 where people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you see, somehow, God is weaving this narrative through chapters 1, 2, 3, ending in verse 4, so that his people will rightly worship him. That God's work has made a way for us to call upon him in spite of our sinfulness. So God's purpose in creation is to initiate a relationship that is forever defined by his grace and his redemption. God's redeeming work, it never, ever, ever excuses our sin. There's still consequences for Cain. There's still consequences for the serpent and for Adam and Eve that we all are still living into still today. But he always pardons our sin. And so for us, the great hope is this, that we gather together as God's people today and we believe that there is no sin too great that can keep you from your creator. That God from the very beginning is creating a relationship with his creation that is a picture that you can receive freedom from the penalty of sin. In the same way that God had knit these clothes together to cover Adam and Eve. God, through the death of his son, has covered your sinfulness here today. There's freedom from the penalty of sin. There's freedom from the guilt of sin. But in the moment when God directly spoke to you and you, like Cain, heard God's word and acted in a complete opposite way, and when you begin to feel the, 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 the burden and, and penalty and guilt from that sin, God looks at you and he says, not so. 
Why? Because creation finds purpose through the word of God and the work of God. That's why we can look at Genesis chapter 3 and say that creation exists for God. That God's grace that we have already sung of and will end our time of worship singing of again, that God's grace has always and will always sustain creation. That in spite of the fall, God creates a relationship with creation that is forever defined by his gracious pursuit of you. And so our question this morning is this, is God pursuing you? God in his word and his work has made a way for you to live into right relationship with him. That way is by turning from your sin and calling upon the name of the Lord, the God who sent his son to die for your sin, that you can live in right relationship in the redeeming work of God and word of God by calling upon him. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And the promise of scripture is this, that you will be saved. Work here for salvation. There's also work here for sanctification. So for those of us who have already called upon the name of the Lord, we just need to recognize his lordship. That his word is enough. Let's not believe the lie to depart from it. And his work is sufficient to redeem and reconcile us back to him that we are called to bear and multiply the image of God so that the world might see the word of God and the work of God alive in the church of God. It's our call, church. Let's be faithful to the mission of God. It's what he has called us to from the very beginning of creation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, We are humbled by your holiness. God, we stand in awe of you and who you are. And Father, how in our sinfulness, God, your word is sufficient. And God, in your work has been to redeem and to reconcile and to restore us to right relationship with you. Father, we are thankful that when we feel the guilt and weight of our sin, you, the blood of your son, you look upon us and you say, not so. Uh, We're thankful for when your word is clear and we clearly choose our sin and ourself over you. You look at us and you clothe us in our shame. Father, you do that because you desire to reconcile not just the folks gathered this morning, God, you desire to reconcile the world to yourself. And the way you do that is the same way you did it for us. And that's through your amazing grace. So, Father, as we respond to your word now, God, I pray that we would see, understand the truth that's found in your grace and how your grace sustains us and shows us how your word and your work is active among us. So, Father, work now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.